podcast is brought to you by the Administrative Committee of the Presbyterian Church in America, promoting the unity, purity, and progress of the Church. Learn more about the Administrative Committee and support its work at pcaac.org. This is Gifts and Graces. Each episode, we bring you a seminar, sermon, or discussion from church leaders across the country and around the world designed to promote the unity, purity, and progress of the church. All Christians have communion in each other's gifts and graces, says the Westminster Confession. So on this podcast, we help you and your church benefit from the gifts and graces of other parts of Christ's body. On this episode of Gifts and Graces, we get to hear from Teresa Sidebotham on best practices for legal and scriptural protection of children in our churches. Teresa Sidebotham is an attorney at Teleos Law. This was originally recorded as a seminar delivered at the 2014 General Assembly. Let's listen as Teresa teaches about components of a good child protection plan. I'm Teresa Sidebotham. I'm an attorney. My husband is a, a PCA Army Reserve Chaplain. We're former missionaries and I grew up as a, a missionary kid, which was really the Lord's preparation for all of this kind of work. We lived in a, a Muslim urban environment and so as a, a young female there I was exposed to low-level sexual abuse from ages about 9 to 16 just on a daily basis you know, out on the street in my life and we also served in Indonesia for seven years with four children of our own and uh, sexual abuse is endemic in that culture so we were aware of it much sooner than most young couples are. Uh, when I when I went back to law school and started working at a large firm, I actually was involved quite a bit with not only religious liberties law, but the Catholic sex abuse litigation and some of the other denominational litigation. So, so that was my preparation. Um, right now, Telios Law, probably about half of the practice is helping organizations deal with child protection and, and uh, abuse issues, primarily sex abuse. A lot of my work is with large mission organizations, and so uh, that'll form some of the context of, of what we'll talk about. Towards the end, Bruce will hand out a white paper that is a little bit more missions-directed, but should still give you some helpful information. So let's talk about several contexts you need to be aware of for, for these child protection issues. First is the historic context. Historic cases, there's historic cases and there's current cases. And if you're with a church or an organization that's been working with kids for a long time, both of these are an issue. Uh, we know from the research in religious organizations there's a large bell curve of abuse. It, it was way up in the 60s, 70s, 80s. It started dropping off in the 80s, dropped off pretty sharply in the 90s, and, and is much lower now than it was then. Now back in that day, abuse was thought to be rare, which it wasn't. It was thought not to be harmful, which it was. 
and the uh, law enforcement and psychologists and everyone pretty much had a you can cure this through therapy rehabilitation framework. So that is the context of how the Catholic scandal happened. It happened in your churches too if you're that old. So some of the things that float up will be historic, some of them are current, and you have to be prepared to deal with both. The second context that we need to address is, is the protection context. Uh, children have been hurt, children are being hurt, and it is absolutely critical to deal with that. Um, in the last talk, you know, I thought Boz did a great job talking about the heart of Christ towards children. We have that responsibility to kids now. We also have responsibility to heal those who were abused in the past. A third context is the cultural context. You might be surprised to know that sexual abuse is much, much greater in government institutions than it is in any religious institution. If you send a child to public school K to 12, the chances that they will have been sexually abused by an educator by the end of that is almost 10% if you include verbal sexual abuse and something around 7% if it's just, just physical, not including the verbal. That's the Department of Justice study. The rates in the church aren't anywhere near that high, but I promise you if something breaks in the church, you'll see that in the press a long way before you'll see it in the government institutions. Uh, there's a number of reasons for that, but one reason is the cultural hostility now towards Christianity, and that's an important consideration. There's the legal context. You saw the stories about the Catholic scandal. There is a large plaintiff's market for child sexual abuse. If you get this wrong, you will be defending those cases. So you can see this is pretty nuanced. There, there's a lot going on. We'll talk about uh, these, some of these things fairly rapidly in the next few minutes. So. Let's start, and, and this is going to be a, a quick soup to nuts overview. So we're going to start first talking about the abuse environment. So if you're going to, ha if child abuse happens, you've got to have three things. You've got to have a potential victim, a child who's susceptible for some reason. Not all children are. You've got to have a potential abuser, somebody who will abuse a child if given the opportunity. That's obviously a fairly small percent of people, but they're there, and they may be specifically targeting your church for that reason. The third factor is the lack of a capable guardian. Well, you get to be the capable guardian. That's the piece that you can control. You can't control the abuser, and you can do some, some things to protect and educate the child, but you can be the capable guardian. You need sexual misconduct policies and codes of conduct. Now, good news, as a religious organization, your codes of conduct can be a lot broader. You can include adult pornography in your code of conduct as, as something people are not allowed to do. You can have standards for premarital and extramarital behavior that secular organizations can't. And so you can put a high standard of behavior in place 
for your staff, your volunteers, your members, and that helps create an environment. Don't just think about abuse, think about boundary violations, making people aware and dealing with things. And, and we could spend a whole hour just on that, but there's, there's good training programs that are available for that sort of thing. You'll want to screen all your volunteers and staff, particularly the ones who work with children, even the ones that don't. Screening and criminal background checks, do they help? The criminal background checks probably do not help very much. I mean, the Catholic Church has done millions of them and they really don't turn up much of anything except somebody used marijuana 15 years ago. But there is an argument that they're a good thing to do just to let people know you're watching and they're considered reasonable now. And as an organization, you're responsible for doing the things that are, are reasonably safe to do. Now, is it actually the standard of care? There's at least one recent court decision that said, no, not yet, but that certainly seems to be the direction things are going in. Uh, so screening, uh, you can screen people with applications. You're free as a religious organization to ask a lot of specific questions and you can do that. Uh, you can ask for references. You can check on those references. This type of screening is much more effective. Going to people and uh, asking about the person, you know, was everything okay, what are they like, and, and so forth. And again, there's a lot to that, that there's material out there. We help people work through that all the time. Training your, your staff, your volunteers, your parents, your children. Training really helps because if you think of it this way, you've got a whole church full of good people who would not hurt a child, and then maybe you have someone who would like to. Well, they don't necessarily start out right off the bat with the worst possible behavior. Often when people look back, they say, yeah, he used to do some kind of weird stuff, or we sort of wondered about that. Um, and, so, and I'm thinking of some of the examples that come to mind, but, but in retrospect, there are things you think, maybe that shouldn't have been happening. Well, if you have good training so that everyone is aware of what a healthy environment looks like, then they can step in right when those first boundary violations start to happen and prevent anything serious from going on. So that's why it's good to have everyone in the environment aware so that you all become part of that capable guardian. Some organizations do organizational audits throughout to, to see how they're doing. Some universities do that. Some, uh, the Catholic Church does it every year, which is why they have such uh, detailed statistics. And again, probably most organizations don't do that, but that certainly is a step to take in dealing with it. So those, those are generally what you can do ahead of time and, and what should be done on some level ahead of time. I mean, not everybody's policies and process are going to be exactly the same. There's not necessarily a checklist of you have to do every single thing, but there should be enough done so that you're reasonably protecting the children in your care, and that's important. Now. 
despite your best efforts to prevent abuse from happening, statistics are that at some point it's going to, or that there will be an allegation and it may or may not have happened. And, and so one of those two things is, is likely to happen during the course of your experience in ministry. So we'll talk about what we do next. You want to have good reporting procedures and understanding of your state's law. Now some states, everybody's a mandatory reporter. Some states, clergy are in a list of mandatory reporters. In Colorado, for instance, clergy are mandatory reporters except when the communication is under the clergy privilege and then they're not. That's a common scenario in a lot of states. You need to know what your state's law is and who's a mandatory reporter. And you should also know in your church's policy what you're going to report, whether you're a mandatory reporter or not. So when I'm working through investigations with clients, our default position is we're going to report. We don't usually sit around and worry about exactly whether the person who heard it is a mandatory reporter. But I do want to mention the issue of, of clergy confidentiality. Now I'm told the PCA doesn't have an official policy on the clergy privilege. Some people call it the confessional privilege, the clergy parishioner privilege, and so forth. And each religious organization constitutionally gets to decide on that privilege for itself. It, it's a privilege <laughs> under the First Amendment. And in most states, it's a, a common law privilege and, and so forth. What I would suggest, though, is you need to get this worked out in your own mind. Because, and there's arguments both ways. There's the argument that, well, my conversations with people are confidential, but if I hear about a crime, that is too dreadful and I'm going to take it to the authorities. And that's one argument. The other argument is, I'm a pastor, people come to me to share the deep secrets and troubles of their heart. They're not going to do that and get my pastoral help if they know that the next thing I'm going to do is pick up the phone. And that's the argument the other way. Well, I'm not telling you which way you need to go on that, but I am asking you to be clear. Because if you have a conversation with a person who believes they're sharing with you under pastoral privilege, then I would suggest to you that for you to turn around and breach that privilege is, is a form of betrayal. And you know, as a pastor, as, as your spiritual duty, should you be doing that? So the people you're talking to need to know up front, which it is. And if, in fact, you believe in the clergy privilege, you know, that needs to be clear. And, and Pastors who work under that privilege have other ways of, of handling things, such as you know, encouraging the person to self-report. And it's complicated either way. But this is not a discussion or something that you want to be wrestling with after you've had that really loaded conversation. You want to have this worked out as a church ahead of time. So if you have had an allegation this is the point where we are now. Uh, obviously, if the perpetrators told you something, then it may not be an allegation, you may know. But supposing someone has made an allegation that 
something happened to them or it happened to someone that they know. So at this point, you have a number of values that you need to address, and these are all really important interests. And to some extent, their intention but I strongly believe that they they actually work together well if they're approached right. So you need to protect potential victims, uh, other people who might be hurt if there's been abuse. You need to protect the alleged victim, so the person who's saying, I was abused. They have a right to justice from you. If they have been abused, they have a right to some kind of healing ministry. You also have the responsibility to provide due process and protection from potential false allegations for your alleged offender. And this is serious, too, because on the one hand, you have a possible victim, but on the other hand, if this is an allegation and it's false, once this gets out or gets established, that person's life is basically over. And if you think about it, all of you are a couple of weeks away from having your career completely ended if someone were to make a false allegation about you. And so that's an important value to address as well. The, the victim who's life may have been seriously damaged if they're a victim, the alleged offender whose life will very rightly be serious da seriously damaged if they did it, but if they're innocent, then not. And lastly, you want to handle the investigation in a way that doesn't create further legal liability and public scandal. And I strongly believe that although you have a spiritual obligation to deal with these things, you don't have a spiritual obligation to deal with them in a way that wrecks your church. When you're at the beginning, when the allegation has been made, you have no idea whether that allegation is true or false. You, you can't possibly know. And we've dealt with investigations where we've said, okay, well, we need to be careful as we're sending in the investigators not to do it in a way that wrecks the person's ministry because what if they're innocent? And come to find out there was just no substantiation for the allegations in that particular case and the organization was extremely glad that they hadn't put things out there in a way that would, that would wreck the man's ministry. But you don't know at the beginning. Now let me bring forth the next question is uh, why are you going to investigate? Now, we've talked about the reporting, and I've said that generally I encourage people to report, if at all possible, even if they're not mandatory reporters. So you may say, well, this is out of my hands, this is in the hands of the authorities, and perhaps that's so. In my world, frankly, it's usually not, <laughs> and here's why. Uh, DHS investigates current child abuse. So you, if you have someone who is currently a child and who is currently in that jurisdiction, then they may well do the investigation and, and sort that all out for you. The police and prosecution's jurisdiction is over crimes. Well, that's fine, but they are not interested in the long ago or the far away. 
And so, for instance, with my mission clients, if something happened overseas, the local police are not usually interested. If it happened 25 years ago, they're not interested. If it was both, they're really not interested. And depending on what has been alleged, you may or may not find that law enforcement is interested. If they are, we generally recommend that the religious organizations step back and let the secular authorities do the investigation. We, we don't want to contaminate evidence that there's going to be a prosecution and it's actually quite helpful in some ways to have someone else doing that investigation. Once they've done it, the church still has a spiritual responsibility. Our values are still there protection for children, healing for victims, due process for the accused. And just because the law has done something doesn't mean that there's still no church discipline issues at all. So there may still be some investigative pieces to wrap up, or, or there, you know, there may not. There may just be disciplinary decisions. In the event that the law or DHS is not going to touch it, I've had people say, well, well, why? Why would I do anything if they're not interested? And there's several important reasons why, and they come from several different angles. One is, if that happened to the victim, they're still wounded. They still need justice, whether the authorities did something or not. If the allegation's been made, the alleged offender still is entitled to due process and justice, and you still have all of the spiritual responsibility that you had before because your spiritual responsibility doesn't come from the state, it comes from God. And so all the responsibilities still exist for you. And then a last reason is this. If you don't know that someone in your church or organization has done something, then you're not responsible. You're responsible for the things that you know and what you do about them on a legal level. But as soon as you had the first abuse allegation against a person, now you're on notice. And if you don't do anything, and 10 years later somebody comes back and says 15 kids have been abused since you were first told that Mr. X in your church did something, you've just bought the legal liability. And so your concern for victims, your concern for justice, and your concern for not taking on legal liability, all of those things work together to indicate you should deal with this reasonably and responsibly. So let's talk about the investigation. Uh, current investigations and historic investigations work a bit differently. The, the evidence is a lot harder to get hold of in the historic investigations. It usually takes longer to track people down. You're, you're working with, with various issues about you know, where the documents are and who's still alive and who remembers what. And in both cases, I believe that it's important to do the investigation. So let's talk about the task of your team that you're going to put together. And you, you will want to put a team of people together who is responsible for the investigation. First, the investigative team is responsible for finding out the truth. Now that may sound obvious, but 
for instance, I will serve either as the attorney advising the organization or as the attorney directing the investigation, but I don't do both at the same time. In my view, that's a conflict of interest. If I'm advising the organization, my job is to tell them the law, to give them recommendations, to, to warn them, perhaps to push them a little. If I'm running the investigation, my job is to find out the truth and deliver it. And that's not completely contradictory, but it's a slightly different task. Scripturally, uh, you know, we're warned against causing the little ones to stu stumble. Proverbs says, the Lord hates haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil. And he hates the oppression of the innocent. So it's important for us to know the truth. A second thing that's important is to avoid wounding the alleged victim or their family. And you need to understand that it's possible that even if the allegation is not factually true, they can still be very wounded and need your help and support. And we'll talk a little bit more about that as we go on. Another responsibility of the investigative team is to collect information about who else may have been harmed in the past or who may be harmed in the future. Another responsibility is justice to the alleged offender. And we think about the scriptures on false accusations. Isaiah 5, denying justice to the innocent. Psalms 27, you know, false witnesses rise up against me spouting malicious accusations. Deuteronomy 19.18, the judge investigates thoroughly to see if the witness is a false witness. And then the passages in Deuteronomy 19 about um, convicting people on the evidence of two or three witnesses, or 1 Timothy 5, receiving accusations on the basis of two or three witnesses. Now it is true that with issues like child abuse, you may not be able to have two or three witnesses but you should be able to have a general picture that corroborates and, and it should hang together. So it's not as soon as someone has said something, they know then that's automatically true because I submit to you that is not scriptural justice. In the investigation, your team does not want to create liability. They want to have confidentiality in place. Your competencies on the team may include psychological, legal, someone who understands how the organization works, someone who has skills in interviewing children, that's a very highly trained skill, someone who understands how to interview alleged offenders, that's not an easy job to do and, and people need to have some training on that. Uh, if you're in a mission setting, cross-cultural issues. If you're in an inner city setting or a, an ethnic setting, you might have cross-cultural issues as well. Potential criminal charges. Now, I said if the law enforcement is investigating, you'll want to step back. But sometimes it isn't until after you've investigated that they get interested. And so you'll want to avoid things that might contaminate the evidence because if a person has done this terrible thing, and they can be brought to justice, that should happen. And, and these, this is really tough. On the issue of the false testimony, you know, one alleged victim once said, well, it would be a very evil person who would accuse somebody falsely. Why would that happen? 
And my response is, yes, you're right. That would, in fact, be a very evil thing to do. And child sexual abuse is also a very evil thing to do. And as between them, we don't know why people do these evil things, but it happens. And, and let me just mention briefly, many times when the allegation is false, it's also not deliberately false. And I will touch on that a bit more later. So there can be a false accusation that isn't a lie. I guess complicated. We need to think about outreach to people who are victims in this process. You know, right now we're still thinking of them as alleged victims. But we have to assume going into the process that there's a very high level of pain involved there. And people who are victims of child sexual abuse and other forms of, of abuse say that the first thing they need is for, to feel their story is really heard, to be taken seriously. So in that sense, not to investigate is the worst thing you can do because it's dismissing and minimizing and saying, well, Either that didn't happen or, you know what, it happened and we really don't care. Well, that's a terrible message to send. The message needs to be that we do care deeply about this pain and we are going to investigate. Now, a really tough thing for victims on these investigations is, you know, I've spent a fair bit of time talking to you about the investigation being impartial not assuming the allegations true, not assuming the allegations false. So if I'm interviewing you and your allegation might be true or it might not be true, that's a tough experience. I mean, that's questioning your story, that's asking you the hard questions and you have to do that to have an impartial investigation. But it's hard and so very likely the alleged victim may need some additional support and encouragement, may need other people to stand by them and you know that might possibly be some counseling you provide, some pastoral care where somebody who's outside of the investigation is responsible for that care. Because the care is needed and yet it's somewhat inconsistent with a true impartial investigation. That's why the, the prosecutor's office will have a, a victim's advocate who is quite separate from the prosecutor itself. Teresa, you want to start with this? Oh, sure. Uh, Bruce is going to hand around a clipboard, and if you have any interest in getting our, our monthly electronic Talios Tip newsletter, just sign it and put your email address. Okay, let's talk a little bit, if, if you're doing an investigation, whether it would be an inside team or an outside team. Now, you're from churches, most of you, they can vary in size. Uh, obviously, it's going to vary in people who are available with different types of expertise. So that's one consideration. There's also the issue a completely internal investigation is, is open to uh, allegations of bias. And in fact, it can be hard for it not to be biased because there's all those personal pressures. And so very often it can be a good idea to have at least one external person. And sometimes, especially with the really big scandals, you'll see organizations bring in an entire outside team. And I think that it 
personally, I think it depends on what you're investigating and why and how serious the issue is. So that's something that it's good to think about. Whether you need an attorney involved is another thing that it's good to think about. A large part of what I do is walk through organizations as they set the investigation up. Uh, there's issues of confidentiality, attorney-client privilege, and there's a lot to think about. And so very often it's a good idea to have an attorney involved if, if there's any degree of complexity to it at all. Credibility issues are, are just a huge area, and, and this is what I alluded to before. So people's memories and how they see things, it, it's a lot less reliable or standard than you would think. For instance, they went back and did a study on the people who were exonerated by DNA evidence in Project Innocence. And if I'm remembering the statistic correctly, 70% of those people were convicted on eyewitness testimony. People who were there, they saw it, they pointed to the guy and said, you did it, but he didn't do it. And that was contemporaneous eyewitness testimony. If you add layers in this, where say you have a young child who may or may not fully understand the day-to-day -day narrative, or if you have a person who's talking about something that happened 25 years ago, perhaps most difficult of all is, is the entire recovered memory issue, where a person didn't remember something for many years and then they began to remember it again. There's a lot on recovered memory. It, it's, it's hotly disputed, but best practice on that is not to find something's true based on a recovered memory unless there's corroboration of the story. You know, someone says, well, she didn't remember it for 20 years, but she did tell me about it right after it happened. Bingo, you're there. Or someone says, yeah, it happened to all the sisters too, and they've all remembered it ever since. That's corroboration. But many other things are not corroboration, and it's recovered memory is simply not reliable enough to take action on when it's just that all by itself. But this, this gets to the point that I was making earlier where these people are not lying. They have the memory and they are just as hurt having the memory as if the memory were factually true. And so the pain of having these memories surface out of nowhere is just unbelievable. And so even if the determination is that the allegation didn't happen or that you can't determine whether it happened or not, they still need healing. They still need ministry and outreach because they're suffering. And one more point here, and this really helps me to frame these issues, especially with memory. On one hand, you have a therapeutic model. So this would be your, your psychological counseling model, your pastoral counseling model. Well, for purposes of that model, if I come to you and say, I have these horrific memories of abuse that happened to me, in that model, you absolutely accept them and you go on to counsel me and you try to help with, with healing and, and helping me move forward. Th there's no reason in that model 
to question the facts. It's really not relevant. I'm hurting, you're there. In the legal model, it's quite different. In the legal model, we have evidence for civil lawsuits, we have evidence for prosecutions to consider, we have other people's lives being ruined to consider. We're actually going to do things that affect other people and so in that model we require a different standard of evidence, we require some corroboration and in that model we're saying someone says to me, I'm sorry you're hurting but you haven't given me anything that I can corroborate. I mean, you didn't remember this and suddenly this is welling up out of your unconscious, I can't do anything about it. And I think if we break these models apart and, and not let them cross over into each other, we can really be more helpful to people. So good approaches in our investigation. We want trained, experienced investigators. This is, this is not for the faint-hearted and not for people who are practicing. Uh, maybe they're practicing law, I don't know. We want some kind of provision for impartiality and accountability and to do this, you know, we may possibly need to pull in some outsiders. Or, or perhaps we do it internally but we have an outside review to make sure that we've really done it the way we need to do it. There really needs to be awareness of the legal situation. In one CFO of a, a very large religious organization made the comment that you're one lawsuit away from extinction. And you really are. I mean, these are lawsuits that run into the millions on damages. And while you don't want to protect yourself at the expense of children or victims, as I keep saying, I think these interests run together. But there's no need to be foolish in the investigation and put all your information out there or do it in ways that, that create legal liability. So someone on your investigative team needs to understand the litigation arena with these cases. And as I think we've mentioned, we have to act appropriately with reference to law enforcement. As the secular authority, the sword is in their hand, uh, prosecution and punishment are in their hands and we definitely don't want to sabotage that. I'm going to move on to what I consider red flags in an investigation. And to be honest with you, not everyone would agree with me that these are red flags. Obviously people have different theories about pros and cons in investigations. Well, these are mine. In my experience, it's usually not the best plan to reach out to the complete universe of potential victims about an investigation. You know, that is one approach. Contact every child who might ever have been in contact with this person in any way and say, were you abused? It, it's been tried both ways. I have hesitation about that because it tends to stir up a lot of bitterness and turmoil and encourage a certain number of probably not true allegations. So. I prefer to take the expanding circles approach where you, you contact people as their name arises as someone who may have been involved or as they reach back and contact you. Now for that approach to be workable, you need to have a very strong open door policy where people understand that you will receive these allegations. That's just completely meaningless if your organizational policy is effectively ignore it. 
So people go back and forth about that one. That's generally my position. Although I think sometimes an outside investigative team is appropriate, uh, for instance, with Penn State when they'd gotten into that much trouble, generally that's reserved for either really large matters or things that have otherwise gotten out of control in some way. So that wouldn't be my typical model to have a complete outside investigative team. <coughs> but there are times when that is definitely the best way to go. I don't like an investigative model. It doesn't preserve both confidentiality and privilege. Confidentiality means I will keep your secret and not tell it. You know, I will not put your documents on the internet. I will not tell all my neighbors you're doing the investigation. Privilege means I don't have to tell the other side this in a lawsuit. <coughs> now, as a religious organization, there are certain privileges you can claim. We don't have time to get into it. If you set up your investigations with an attorney involved, you can set it up with attorney-client privilege. Your investigators, in my view, should promise confidentiality about the investigations. It's important to get at the truth. I see no reason to go into it with a direct line feed to the newspaper. I would recommend that you not include a victim's advocate on the team and keep them informed at all times. And I would also recommend that you not keep an advocate for your alleged defender on the team and inform them at all times. If the investigation is going to be unbiased, it, it needs to not be driven by either of those sides. Now, both those parties are entitled to know that something is happening and, and roughly that it's moving along and that results are being reached. But the fact that a person may be a victim does not entitle them, in my view, to a, a complete update on everything that's happening all the time, because that is not an unbiased investigation. I would not recommend letting an alleged offender insist on a Matthew 18 confrontation. There, there is enough of a power differential between someone who may be a victim and someone who may be an offender that that conversation doesn't usually go well. And I don't think that verse is intended to apply to every single setting and every single culture because sometimes it's just not appropriate. That would also mess up a confidential investigation or, or an unbiased investigation. The investigation may go wrong if it fails to critically evaluate certain evidence, so like recovered memories, for instance. If you can't answer the question, why do we believe this is true and have a reasonable answer, that can be a problem. Failure to preserve evidence is another problem. Uh, for instance, if you've got a number of witnesses or maybe multiple alleged victims, at least as far as the investigative team is concerned, you want to keep them separate from each other because you don't want people telling their stories back and forth because even among adults, sharing stories can contaminate and distort memories. Some of that you may not be able to control. I mean, you can't control what people do on Facebook, but to the extent that you're responsible for that, that's important. Uh, another one that a friend of mine, Dr. Rick Escano, mentioned is that you have to be careful about preserving evidence before the person goes into therapy. 
So say there's been child sex abuse. Well, you want the child in therapy for, for healing, but that can change the testimony and it can change it to the point where it's no longer valid to use it in, say, a prosecution. And so I said, what do you do? And one possible answer is a skilled forensic interview done on videotape that freezes the testimony before the child then goes into therapy. And I'm just putting that out as an example. That particular area is not my expertise, and I would pull in an expert to advise on that piece of it, but these are the types of things that we, we have to be thinking about. If we don't preserve the evidence well, if there's ever going to be a prosecution, it may not be able to happen. And in addition, how will your church make the right disciplinary decisions without good evidence? Um, another red flag is failing to evaluate how far the investigation should go. There's a point where you're stopping too soon and you haven't done the work, and there's a point where you're just going on and on and it turns into a lengthy inquisition of everybody in the known universe. And somewhere between those two, you, you need to be able to say, we've got what we need, we need to stop. And, and that's actually a conversation that my clients and I find ourselves having regularly. Another red flag, um, you know, we talked about the confidentiality and the privilege. I am strongly against publishing detailed reports of the investigation. And I'm very strongly against doing that before the board or the leadership has had a chance to see and evaluate them. There's a whole wave of lawsuits on the other side, defamation lawsuits and, and sort of that whole related field. If you put out a lot of detailed information, you may well find yourself defending one of those lawsuits. And, and it's just... That level of detail, I believe, is, is sliding into gossip and slander and, and just way more information. If you compare it to any other form of church discipline that you do, you don't put out a press release with all the details. You, know, you discipline the person, you let people need to know what they need to know, and you move on. And here is a related concern. An investigation... Well, let's talk first about the spiritual authority. So God has put the elders in charge of the church with the spiritual authority and responsibility. I know in our Presbyterian system that, that goes on all the way up. Well, as an attorney or as an investigative team, neither of those should be usurping the authority of the elders. And so I don't recommend that the investigative team publicly make recommendations or make the disciplinary decisions or, or try to make the disciplinary decisions or be public about that because that belongs in the spiritual province of the religious leaders who make the decision. Now the investigative team is responsible for making factual findings. They went after the truth, they interviewed the people, they make a credibility determination and they have to they have to submit those factual findings and say this is what we believe happened. But that doesn't mean that they should take the next step and say, uh, you know, here's what the discipline should be, here's what the church should, should do. And especially, they should not be deciding, well, these people were really hurt, therefore the organization should 
pay the money or waive the statutes of limitations or anything like that. That is stepping over into legal decisions that uh, are not their responsibility to make. So let's talk a bit about outcomes and responses. I know well, we still have a little bit of time. Leviticus 19, you shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor defer to the great. That's both sides get justice from you. You are to judge your neighbor fairly. You shall not go about as a slander among your people, and you are not to act against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. If you let a child be abused, you're acting against the child's life. If you let someone be destroyed unjustly, you're acting against the person's life. So here's another question I get in church discipline. Say you've determined that child sexual abuse happened. Well, it happened a long time ago. And it wasn't here. It had only happened once, and we're pretty sure they've never done it again. Can we let them stay? Can we not take action? Now, I truly believe that God has the power to forgive all sins, including that one, and that sexual abusers can repent and reform. I believe that. But I will tell you that on a practical level, it has been tried, and it doesn't work on a practical level. It's, it's too much of a Russian roulette. There is way too much recidivism. And painful, deep, repeated experience teaches us you've got to have zero tolerance for child sex abuse. Spanking your kids too hard, yelling at them, punching your wife in the nose, and discipline that and move on if that's what you want to do. Child sexual abuse, they should never be around children again. It's a consequence of the sin. And it, that, that needs to be a non-negotiable in, in terms of leaving people in ministry. I, I would, if you come to me and say that you've got a pastor and elder who sexually abused a child, I hope to see them in heaven, but as far as I'm concerned, they're done in ministry. And, and I can go on, but I won't, <laughs> depending on that position. You need to support people who are victims not just through the investigation, but beyond. This is life-changing. Um, some people are pretty resilient and get over it fine, but many people really never do recover. And so you've got to have that heart of ministry essentially permanently. You may have some responsibility to other religious bodies, to descending churches, to denominational headquarters. There's one lawsuit right now which is going forward because they terminated a youth pastor for inappropriate behavior and he, was trans he went and volunteered at the denominational headquarters with youth, sexually abused someone, they tied it back in, the court refused to dismiss the case. I don't know where that will go, but clearly there's more and more responsibility. But it's very hard because if you start putting out too much information, you only have a qualified privilege to talk about so much which is something that we wrestle through in these cases a lot, and I don't have time to get into it more than that. But just be aware that's an issue, that not saying anything is an issue and saying too much is also an issue. You may need to be prepared to handle the media and public relations. Um, you should understand the difference between reporting and going public. 
You have a qualified privilege in the United States to discipline your members and to discuss it within the membership. You know, 1 Timothy 5 says, rebuke the elders who sin in front of the church, uh, but you don't have a privilege to tell the whole world, and that can get you in trouble. And so, encouraging and rebuking with your leadership responsibility and authority, but being wise about how that goes outside the church. Now, I want to spend just my last little bit of time, um, and I'm happy after that to answer questions as, as long as you want. There's, there's no one else in the room. Um, but I want to talk briefly about the reasons for the modification and the proposal. And, and Bruce, this might be a good time to hand out the folders, too. Oh, you did all right. Oh, you're way ahead of me. <laughs> First, the proposal deals briefly with the clergy communication privilege issues uh, as modified. This is the proposal that's going to be voted on for child protection. And, and so the Rocky Mountain Presbytery has suggested a few modifications, and I just wanted to touch on the reasons why. And you probably don't have the proposal in front of you. So well, as modified, it stresses reporting to authorities, but we don't want necessarily public gossip and exposure, and especially not before we know what the truth is. Uh, impartial investigations, you know, I've, I've hit on that quite a bit, and the proposal as modified uh, suggests that we have those. It deals a little bit more with the issue of false accusations. And by the way, just so you know, in my practice, I would say about a quarter of the allegations are false. Um, a much, much smaller percentage than that are deliberately false. That's a tiny percent. I mean, that, that really is malice. But probably about a quarter we investigate and we're like, eh, it didn't actually happen. Which means that there's a lot that did. Could you elaborate on that a little bit? Uh, uh, yeah, I would say a deliberate allegation is, you know, I, I don't like Pastor so and so, I want him gone, so I'm going to say that I saw him molest a child. I mean, that's deliberate, just sheer malice. And the person doing it might be, well, obviously, they're disturbed in some way, but there's various motives for doing that. But sometimes in an investigation, you'll find there, there's a pretty strong motive against someone. I really don't like my stepfather or, or whatever, right? Uh, you know, they, they say women don't cry rape falsely. Well, they absolutely do. And children also make false allegations and so do other people. So that's a very small subset. What we see a lot more of is people who were perhaps abused but they're confused about who did it. I mean this could happen with a small child or with older allegations or we see a lot of recovered memories where it, sometimes we can establish that it didn't happen and sometimes it's less clear. But the whole recovered memory thing, people will be very convinced and very, very wounded about something that may simply not be true. And sometimes we can take that down to the level of that person wasn't even living in the area at the time, and yet you have this clear memory that this happened. So that's what I mean between the deliberately false and the I'm saying this and I believe it's true, but it isn't. Um, the modification of the proposal addresses a little bit more the biblical standards for testimony and, and also leaves more room for 
proper church discipline and being careful about defamation issues in the landscape. You can hear more talks like this by subscribing to the Gifts and Graces podcast. You can also hear more content like this by attending a seminar at General Assembly. They're free and open to the public. Find out times and locations by visiting pcaga.org. Thanks for listening to Gifts and Graces.